Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. Another end of the week. It is Friday, January the 29th, a a week, I think, generally one could say of, of pretty bad news, of miserable news, of bad news. But there's some good news. There's always some good news every week. Uh, One of the nice pieces of news I saw this week was that uh, Bernie Sanders mittens have raised $1.8 million for charity. And and Bernie, in his inimical way, is building on his brand or his meme as a a, a kind of uh, his, his, his brand of aesthetic minimalism. Uh, we see here Bernie in his mittens and his old jacket and his uh, very cheap face mask at the inauguration last week. Lots of people are playing around with this meme of uh, the aesthetics of minimalism. Lots of people trying to create their own art around it. A lot of fun. And as I said, the good news is that uh, Bernie is giving that meme, his aesthetic, back to the community. Uh Today, though, on the show, we're talking about a different kind of aesthetic. Um, My guest is uh, Gillian Hernandez. She's an academic, uh, an aesthetician, a theorist (laughs) of beauty uh, based in Florida. She's talking to me from uh, Gainesville, Florida, and she is the author of a really intriguing new book, the opposite, if you like, of Bernie Sanders, Aesthetics of Excess. Uh, the one thing I didn't see in your book, Gillian, is any reference to Bernie Sanders. I assume he, he, he does not represent the aesthetics of excess. Is that fair? That is, that is completely fair. Um, I love me some Bernie Sanders, though. So, you know, no shade to Bernie for not embracing the aesthetics of excess. I don't always like to get too personal in our conversations, Gillian, but I can't resist with you. Uh, I love your website about yourself. Uh, uh, You make a joke about looking a little bit like a brat doll, and you have this wonderful image of yourself, iconic, (laughs) half serious, I'm guessing, Um, self-reverential. And again, I'm contrasting that for those people only watching this, your image, your your iconic image of yourself with Bernie. Um, in all seriousness, though, I assume that the the core political argument in your book, Aesthetics of Excess, the art and politics of black and Latino embodiment, is that um, appearance and or political appearance and political reality are the same thing. And one way for the for the empowerment of of, of, of young women in particular in the Latina and African-American community is through appearance. Is that fair? It is fair, but the way I'm arguing about that um, power and politic of embodiment is very different from the way it's typically viewed. 
Um, and what I mean by that is that um, for working class Black and Latina women and girls, especially those who come from immigrant families, um, you are sort of brought up to embrace actually the aesthetics of minimalism or um, respectability um, in a goal of social mobility and inclusion. Um, so in a lot of these communities, the aesthetics of excess, even though they are in circulation and in play, um, they are viewed as threatening to the goal of social inclusion. So um, even though these aesthetics that I am engaging with are very common and, and just part of cultural life in, in Black and Latinx communities, um, they're viewed as dangerous. The idea is like, don't wear those hoops to your meeting don't wear your don't don't have this like um you know obvious or exaggerated makeup because no one will take you seriously so for me it's actually not very surprising that um bernie's minimalist look would generate so much money and value um even when he's someone who is so against right commodification um, the, the, the sort of masculine aesthetics of minimalism have always been um, lucrative and embraced, right? So in the 1970s, you had the rise of minimalism as like the highest form of modern art. And then you have like all of these really ugly corporate buildings and, and bad corporate art um, that's all minimalist, right? Um, so in many ways, minimalism is the language of um, capitalism. Interesting. Minimalism, the language of capitalism. So I'm assuming what you're arguing is that young uh, Latino or, or African-American women, when they grow up and they're successful, they're supposed to look what? Like the female version of, of Bernie Sanders, which would be uh, Elizabeth Warren. I haven't got a photo of Elizabeth Warren here, but she looks very much like him. I, I wonder what your take is on Kamala Harris and her aesthetic. I don't That's such a great true. question. She tells the line. So she definitely stays away from Who's the line, the establishment or your line. No, she told she tells both. So I think, you know, she wears the suit. She wears the pantsuit that, um, you know, that Hillary Clinton sort of made into a brand. Um, and she adds the little playful um, sneakers, right? Her converse. So she's sort of playing with the form, with like that masculine form, but not doing too much. Um, not being being feminine, but not overly feminine. Um, whereas, for example, Alexandria um, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, um, you know, embraced the the hoop earrings, right? Embraces red lipstick and sort of entered the space of the state um, with these signifiers of ethnicity, of a kind of um, hyper feminine and gendered ethnicity. And to me, it's no surprise that she's someone who generates so much um, animosity um, because that's often what the aesthetics of excess generate. They generate- well, Particularly on the part of um, white men, I assume, and particularly white men from your neighborhood. Um, so, um, you know, I'm, I'm actually, the interactions that I look at in the book are actually not from white men, even though, um, I think I think we can assume that there would be perhaps those responses, but I actually look at the ways in which um, communities of color police themselves, police each other. So um, I talk about the ways in which some of our communities, um, you know, there's this way in which we train young people 
to um, not, you know, not dress in certain ways because we're afraid they're going to get stopped by the police or we're afraid that, um, you know, someone is going to perceive something deviant in them and the social cost for that is very high, right? Uh, Trayvon Martin was wearing a hoodie, right? Um, and that marked his body um, as deviant. And so for, for women, um, makeup, earrings, clothing um, also signifies bodies in ways that get perceived as deviant or as respectable. And so I'm actually not really looking at um, necessarily a white gaze on, on bodies of color, but on the ways in which communities of color do this policing work uh, within themselves because of an imagined, I think, um, white gaze or, or a gaze that, that can confer power, that can confer reward or that can confer harm. Uh, you, have, um, you have a nice uh, cartoon, I think, summarizing that argument by uh, Zahira Kelly uh, in the book. Um, what is uh, Kelly telling us about the, uh, the wearing of one's identity, so to speak, on one's, uh, 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 on one's sleeve? Yes, um, Zahira Kelly's work is amazing because she's actually dealing with the um, with the politics of blackness within um, Latin American and Latinx communities. And so there's a way in which, um, in a very broad sense, um, the idea of what constitutes, um, you know, Latinidad, what, what it means to be, um, you know, Latinx is very much framed as um, being a sort of what, what's called a mestizo, being a mix, so, uh, being someone with mixed ancestry, with a little bit of European, a little bit of indigenous, a little bit of African-American. Um, and, you know, many folks, Zahira Kelly and other um, artists like her and other scholars have talked about how this idea of um, the Latino subject as mixed has actually erased Afro-Latinas and, and, and um, Afro-Latin um, American people from uh, representations of Latinidad. So her comic is very much about the ways in which when this topic is raised, other Latinos are like, oh, stop being so divisive, right? Why are you being so divisive? We're all the same, right? Well, Jillian, if there is an opposite, an ultimate opposite to Bernie Sanders, it's a group that you introduced me to in the book. I, I hadn't heard of them. Chongalicious. Uh, Chongalicious. The, chong uh, the Chonga girl. I don't know if I pronounce it right. Chongalicious. Not yeah. Changa. We spelt it wrong. With an O. Chongalicious. Uh, right. Uh, a, a wonderfully vibrant act or representation <laughs> that sort of summarize your aesthetic and your politics. Tell me about Chongalicious. Chongalicious was a viral YouTube sensation. Um, it was a video created by two Latina high school girls from Miami, Florida in 2007. And it was a video where they were uh, making fun of young women um, who are called chongas. And so chonga is basically a derogatory term uh, that describes working class Latina girls who um, wear, you know, a lot of jewelry, um, heavy makeup, and have a lot of gel in their hair. So the video was just supposed to be something fun that they did on a on a you know weekend, 
and it cre it, it had millions of views uh, within a very short time frame. The song for the video played on Miami radio for yeah, a long here, time. Here are some of the lyrics. Do you think the one of the reasons, I mean, it was obviously cool and fun and all the rest of it, but do you think one of the reasons it, 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 it acquired uh, so much success was because it, it resonated politically with people? It didn't, it didn't, it wasn't read that way. It was read as more of a celebration of your typical Miami girl. So um, I read a lot of politics into it, but it doesn't really get received that way. Um, it gets received as just like a benign mockery. Um, sometimes it gets received as a celebration of ethnicity, a celebration of Latina girls. Um, but my question is, um, how come when Latina girls go viral, um, why is it always in the form of a joke, right? Or, or why um, there's this way in which, like, I'm thinking of TV shows like Ugly Betty and other representations where Latina girls are just sort of, you know, um, represented as frivolous, as silly, as, um, you know, loud, obnoxious, et cetera, et cetera. So, I'm really interested in uh, when representations of, of Black and Latina girls become um, accrue value. When do they accrue value and how, right? And, and of course, and your book, um, and you are a, a, a scholar of, of, of art or of politicized art, uh, your book deals with a lot of interesting artists, which I have to admit I hadn't heard of before. I was uh, intrigued by uh, Nikki S. Lee's Hispanic project. That these are a couple of the the images or the photos from her Hispanic project. It kind of reminds me of the the Florida project, the movie. What is the Hispanic project, and why did you include it in the book? Right. So Nikki S. Lee is a really interesting artist. She um, is a Korean artist. She's been living in the U.S. since the early 2000s or late 1990s, and when she arrived to the US, um, she she's a photographer, an artist who uses photography, and she um, had this interesting series called Projects where she would transform her appearance in order to interact with members of different subcultures. And so in, in the Hispanic project, she transformed her appearance to um, make friends with and document her everyday life with uh, working class Latina um, young women in New York City. So she wears the dark, you know, the dark lipstick. She puts on, she has a picture, right? One of the pictures you're showing is like her putting on the eyeliner. And it, it was um, pretty much this idea that she was playing with that, even though her body um, could be read as Asian, that she could move in and out of these different identities. And so she has like um, the hip hop project. She has the skater project. She has the yuppie project, um, all of these different, um, projects, but what was interesting to me is that Nikki S. Lee's work, um, when it first emerged, became very popular in the international art world, and the images from the Hispanic project in particular were very popular. And so again, when I see this type of aesthetic in visual culture, it was by created by someone who does not identify as a chonga, um, putting on you know, putting on the aesthetic and the, and and um, generating cultural and material capital from that. Julian, earlier this week, um, we had a different kind of writer, also I think a feminist writer, but very different from you, Rosalind Miles from the UK. She's written uh, the woman's history of the modern world. She didn't have a lot about female artists. Your book is 
full of, of, of female artists. Um, you, you, at the end, you, you pay, um, you, you pay credence to Lorna Simpson, to Yayoi Kusama, uh, yes. and to uh, Lorraine uh, O'Grady. These yes. are, in your mind, inspirational female artists. Why do you see the fe the contemporary female artists so important in terms of the modern history of women? I think because their work provides so many entry points to talking about, I think, the most critical, um, the most critical issues that face us, right? Um, issues of how race and gender play out in, in society. And I think that, you know, as I, as I watch, um, you know, social media, um, you know, discourse and in the light of this election, like all of the of the of the division and of the kind of um, just sort of lack of um, any ability, any ability to have any real discourse or debate. Um, I increasingly appreciate art because um, it is open ended. And so I think it allows for folks to bring in their entry points and for and for people to perhaps be more open to um, a discussion that if someone like me were sharing their work or if it was something they were listening to on the news, they might have an, an automatic filter that would just say like, oh, uh, I, I'm not interested in that or I automatically disagree with that. There's something about art um, that I think just still continues to speak to us on a very um, visceral level that I think still holds enormous potential for um, really shaping the ways that we think about some of the most important issues. How would we fit the aesthetics of excess, of, of, of flaunting oneself and one's possessions and one's image in the history of art itself? Do you look back at previous moments in artistic history? I do, I do. So I don't know if you got to my Nicki Minaj chapter. Yeah, well, that, well, that was my little way of you. Yeah. Nicki Minaj and... Uh, the idea of the Rococo, yes. um, uh, uh, of a way of sort of fitting back the Western tradition in, but making uh, a, a different uh, heart of it, a different kind of argument. Absolutely. That was one of the funnest chapters to write, I have to say. Um, so the girls that I was working, so the book is really, my book is based on over a decade of uh, doing um, feminist art uh, workshops with girls throughout Miami. And the book is really not so much about, it is about what the girls thought about the art, but it's also about what was happening around these conversations. And mm -hmm. in uh, 2012, 2013, the girls were obsessed with Nicki Minaj. And so I became really interested in why, why, why they were so obsessed with Nicki. They were obsessed with Nicki um, because she was able to dominate the sphere of hip hop um, as a feminine woman. And she was also playing with different alter egos. Um, she was bringing a very different approach, um, a very avant-garde approach to hip hop. And it turned out to be very lucrative. And the girls very much resonated um, not only with her content, but with her success. They, they just were, you know, so, so excited by, by that. Um, and as I was doing research on the images that you're showing, which are images of Nicki Minaj that appeared um, in an issue of um, W Magazine, where 
The, and here's the cover when she was even she even got herself on the cover. It's a wonderful cover. It is. And so the, this, these images of her were created by the uh, Italian contemporary artist Francesco Vizzoli. And so he he styled her as a Rococo, um, as a Rococo woman, a woman of, of the Rococo period in France. And um, as I was doing research on on the Rococo to write about those images, I realized that um, European women who embraced the Rococo aesthetics of excess were also denigrated, were also um, thought to be um, hypersexual, social climbers, fake. Um, and so, you know, the aesthetics of excess and the politics of the aesthetics of excess don't just apply to people who are racialized, right? So, um, you know, a, a, a lot of um, social and political factors come into play. Um, in terms of when when does someone read as excessive? And so men were also um, men are also prone to being um, you know framed in this way. So in the Rococo period, you had the macaroni or the dandy, you know, the man who was viewed as a fet because he was too concerned with his appearance. Um, and so you know this this is something that we've had for a long time. Uh, Gillian, we started with Uncle Bernie, so let's go back to him uh, in his mittens. Not yeah, so amused, and yeah. Actually, he's still sitting in that same place, still looking a bit angry, still got his mittens on and his $5 coat. And let me try and be Uncle Bernie for a, for a moment. Let's say that he was watching. Maybe he is. I think he might be thinking to himself, well, this is kind of interesting, but ultimately, who cares? It doesn't impact on young African-American or, or, or Latinx, their careers, their economics, their struggle for freedom. Why, uh, why Gillian focus on the aesthetics of excess when you really should be focusing on economics, on work, on politics? Because aesthetics of excess are deeply embroiled with work and with politics. So in the book, I have a whole um, section about neoliberalism and embodiment where I talk about how um, aesthetics shape how we view particular populations as productive or unproductive, right? Um, you know, and, and these are ideas that we um, have from like Taylorism and Fordism, this idea of the worker, right? Um, who appears to be um, a productive worker and to, and how does one need to in a, in a neoliberal and late capitalist context have to brand themselves, right? We all have to brand ourselves in, in, in this context that we're in. And so um, uh, these aesthetics are extremely important because they, um, they determine how someone's value um, as a worker, as a gendered person, as a racialized person, um, aesthetics mediate all of this, right? And they also are deeply embroiled in circulations of capital, right? So young Black and Latinx people are making money from the aesthetics of excess. So I'm thinking about Cardi B, I'm thinking about Megan Thee Stallion, I'm thinking about Nicki Minaj, I'm thinking about, um, you know, uh, the rise of hip hop as a multi-billion dollar industry, right? Um, and Chongalinga, uh, Chong... Chongalicious? Well, they, you know, uh, You certainly convinced me. Um, okay, good. And I, I can't speak on behalf of Uncle Bernie because uh, at the moment I haven't heard back from him. But certainly it's an interesting argument and I would encourage everyone who, who, who is intrigued by 
by your argument about art and, and, and young uh, Hispanic and, Afri and, and African American women to read the aesthetics, not, not the aesthetics, it's just called Aesthetics of Access. It's a, it's a really interesting book. It taught me about a subject which I know very little about, and it's full of wonderful images and photos uh, and a very original take on all this stuff. So uh, congratulations on the book. Finally, Julian, um, you are stuck in Gainesville, Florida at the moment, your own particular Florida project. Uh, in addition to your book, what else should people be reading in these strange times? Yes, I have found so much inspiration in um, Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower, um, which follows a young Black girl as she navigates um, a dystopian context that is very much like our own. Um, so it's just been, um, we read this in my um, social justice practice course. It's a novel. Uh, we read it um, in the fall, and um, it just has so many resonances and I think um, interesting entry points in thinking about um, sort of late late capitalism, environmental demise, and all of these other things. But um, the potential in building community and um, the ways that young women of color might might save us from all of this mess. Well, Jillian, I want to wish you a very happy healthy and above all else excessive 2021 and i will look forward to having you back on the show in the not too distant future to talk more about the aesthetics of excess thank you so much thank you for having me you've been listening to keynote hosted by me andrew key make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.